Each spring, Pensacola Christian College hosts the Enrichment Retreat designed for pastors, ministry leaders, and church staff to enjoy a time of rest and to be refreshed by the Word of God. Today's message was from a past Enrichment Retreat keynote speaker. Visit EnrichmentRetreat.com for details or to learn more about the upcoming retreat. Luke chapter 14, uh, look at verse 25. If you have a red letter, letter Bible, it's like the one verse that's in black, right? Look at verse 25. And there went great multitudes. Do you see that, verse 25? There went great multitudes with him, with Jesus. Now stop for just a moment. If that were a statement made about your ministry, I think many of us would view that as Wow, success. Matter of fact, well, we even use, you know, here's a great crowd following Jesus. We even use that language. Now, how was Sunday? Oh, man. We had a great crowd. As if that is the measure of success. As if that is kind of the, the apex of ministry accomplishment. But, but watch, watch what Jesus does with the great crowd. See it in verse 25? There went great multitudes or a great crowd with him, and he turned and he said unto them, if, if any man come to me, well, they're already following him. So I think what Jesus is implying here is if you really want to continue to follow me, if you're really in this, if you really claim to be a follower of, of Christ, If any man come to me and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brethren and sisters, yea, in his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. And I think most of us know that that hate is a word, a comparative term. We know that the Lord is not telling us to to hate our mom or hate our our brothers and sisters. I, I preached from this text years ago to some teenagers and one kid came up to me afterwards and said, you know, Pastor Skelly, I'm, I already hate my brother, so I'm, I'm halfway there. No, no, that's not what we're talking about here. Verse, verse 27. And whosoever doth not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. What a statement. He cannot be my disciple, verse 26. He cannot be my disciple, verse 27. Verse 33 So likewise, whosoever he be of you that forsaketh not all that he hath, watch again the the exclusive statement, he cannot be my disciple. And so I want to talk for a few minutes this this morning in this last uh, general session, uh, making disciples or retaining a crowd. Are we making disciples in ministry or are we retaining a crowd? So much of what Jesus had to do in his public ministry was to clarify. It wasn't that people didn't know who Jesus was. As a matter of fact, we preach passages like Matthew chapter 16. I suppose we all have. And we call Matthew chapter 16 the great confession. Peter, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. And remember what Jesus said? Uh, Peter, uh, flesh and blood hath not revealed this unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. In other words, Peter, you're right. You're, you're absolutely irrefutably right. I am Messiah. 
But what's interesting about that passage is that right after Jesus affirmed the, the confession, he immediately entered into a clarifying mode. In other words, now that you know I am Messiah, let's take one step back from that and let me begin to tell you who Messiah is. Because who you think Messiah is, whom you thought Messiah was in your synagogue schools growing up, is not who Messiah is. He's not your preconceived notion of Messiah. Because the Jews, Peter and the others, erroneously assumed that Messiah would be the one that would come in and rid them of Roman oppression. The Messiah would be the one that would come in and rule and reign the 70 nations of the world from Jerusalem. Messiah would be the one that would uh, give them a sense of, uh, of we're in charge again and we're no longer slaves and we don't have to deal with these Roman soldiers and, and uh, I mean, we're going to rule and reign with him. Now, is that Messiah? Sure. Or as my uh, Minnesota friends would say, you betcha. Okay, yeah, for sure. That is Messiah, okay? But is that they were missing a big component of Messiah's ministry. And the big component of Messiah's ministry they were missing was the fact that Messiah would first be what uh, the Bible describes as that suffering servant. They missed Psalm 22 and Psalm 69 and Isaiah 41 and Isaiah 53 and Genesis 3.15 and, and they missed it. Search the scriptures, Jesus said to the Sanhedrin council. For in them you think ye have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me. You're missing me. Ought not Christ to have suffered and to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. They had missed it. And so now that they declared him to be Messiah, Jesus had to clarify to them that Messiah will be the one that suffers. That yes, there is glory, and yes, there is ruling, and yes, there is kingdom, but before all of that, there is the need for suffering. Not only on the part of the Messiah, but also on the part of all of those who follow him. And so in that same passage, if any man come to me, and, and he must deny himself. Right, come after, deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. And that was the great clarification. Now, about six months before Jesus will be hanging upon a cross, he is still reiterating that clarification. Why? The disciples aren't getting it. They're just not getting it. Matter of fact, they don't get it even up until the very day of his crucifixion. Now, Mary, Mary got it. She understood. She came a fourth time to anoint his body to the burying, Mark chapter 14. But the disciples, they're still arguing. Who's going to be the greatest? And who's going to be on the right hand? And who's going to be on the left hand? And who's better than whom? And all of that. All of that. And so Jesus is still clarifying. Now great crowds are following him. It seems as if his ministry is gaining steam, popularity. And yet Jesus is very careful to stop and say, I'm not going to make an improper assessment of my ministry. Just because there's great crowds. Remember the feeding of the 5,000? That crowd wanted to coronate him to be the king on that day. And Jesus wouldn't let them. Why? They didn't fully understand who he was. So I want to talk to you for just a couple minutes. That's all we have. Well, a couple minutes on these three 
Here are my three points, okay? First of all, let's talk about the crowd, just briefly. Let's talk about the crowd, because I'll, I'll, I'll show you some commonalities among this crowd and the crowd that we pastor. Or how about this, a little bit more conviction, the crowd that we are. The crowd that we are. So the crowd. And then I want to talk to you about the clarification, because the message that Jesus gives in Luke chapter 14 is a message of clarification. If, if any man come after me, then this, then this must be true, or else he can't be. Okay, so it's clarification. The crowd, the the clarification, and then uh, thirdly and lastly, we'll talk about the call to action. Because scripture always calls us to act based upon right thinking, based upon mind renewal. What will we now do about what we know? Okay, so the crowd, the clarification, and then the call to action. Notice, first of all, the crowd in verse 25, where the Bible says, there went great multitudes with him. There went great multitudes with him. Who was this crowd? Okay, just just real briefly, who was this crowd? Number one, these were people, these were people that were interested enough to attend the meetings that Christ was conducting. They were interested enough to be there. So who are the crowd? These are the these are the attenders. These are they that show up and find a parking space on Sunday morning. Or if you show up late, you park in the end of the parking lot. I don't care if you are 97 years old because the youth pastor took the handicapped parking spot, right? Okay? These are people that are there. These are people that are attending. They're part of the crowd. They're interested enough to be there. Sometimes we get the the false idea that if we can just get people to church and then just get people to church more often, that somehow, somehow that magically makes them disciples of Jesus Christ. But nothing can be farther from the truth. Because many times in our local ministries, we just cater to mediocrity. We just cater to a laissez-faire. They're not really servants that are coming or disciples in the making. They're customers whom we're serving from this side of the counter. And serving customers, you've got to offer bargains. You've got to be nice. You've got to put on the fake Walmart smile. I mean, if you want to keep on shopping in your store, treat them like customers. And so here's a crowd. They're interested enough to attend. But watch this, number two. Not only are they interested enough to attend, they are committed enough to identify with Christ. They're committed enough to identify. Because already what we're finding in the ministry of Jesus Christ at this particular uh, particular chronological point is we're finding that Jesus is at odds both with the religious leaders and with the civil leaders. He's at odds. There's a, a tension that has been developing with Jesus and his ministry and the religious leaders. Already uh, he's kind of persona non grata in Jerusalem. And already he said some things that have put him at odds with the structure of religiosity that existed in those days. In this very passage, for instance, the Bible says he went to this great feast. And in this great feast, he chided them for the way that they didn't care about people. And he chided them for their preoccupation with the uppermost seats. And he chided them for their pride and uh, their self-service. He chided them. So he's not making any friends among the religious crowd. In the last chapter, the Bible says that people are saying to him, hey, you better be careful about your activity because uh, Herod, Herod Antipas, uh, he, he's, uh, he might be after you. And Jesus said, you go tell that fox. You go tell that fox that, that I walk today and tomorrow. In other words, I'm, I'm in the will of God doing what God wants me to do. And I am alive as long as God wants me to be alive until my purpose is served. And so you go tell him that. That's not how to win friends and influence people. 
So what am I saying? I'm saying that the crowds that are following Jesus are following him in spite of, in spite of the tension that's being caused with the religious crowd, in spite of the tension with the civil crowd. So they are interested enough to attend and they're committed enough to identify. Yeah, that's my church. You know, or, or I'm a Baptist, or whatever the identifying marks that you use, they're committed enough to say that. They're committed enough to be there. This is my crowd. This is my friend group. I'm on that, I'm on that private Facebook page, or whatever the case may be. They're committed enough to identify. They're not disciples. They're not disciples. They're only potential disciples. Listen, let's not erroneously assume that just because we're building bigger crowds at our church, that somehow we're making a difference in our culture. What makes a difference in the culture is disciples. That's what makes a difference. And the Great Commission has one imperative. One. There's one imperative to the Great Commission. And the Great Commission imperative is make disciples. It's teach all nations. You study the, the, the grammar. The, the, partic- the participles only support that one imperative. How do we make disciples? We make them by going. We make them by baptizing. We make them by teaching. But the one imperative of Matthew 28, 19 and 20 is that we make disciples. Our churches are supposed to be producing disciples. Are we just retaining a crowd? Are we just saying the things and avoiding the things to keep our customer base strong? Are we finding our ministry success in the numbers that we have? Or are we truly making disciples? Because in your crowd are some people that need to be called out of that crowd to follow Jesus Christ. And look across your auditorium on a Sunday morning and look in your Sunday school class on a Wednesday night and look, or, 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 or Sunday morning, as the case may be, and look at them and realize there are some people in there that will be called out to be true disciples of Jesus Christ. Watch how Jesus clarifies it. Because the crowd, they're interested enough to attend. They're committed enough to identify, but they're ignorant enough that they need clarification. They think they're following Jesus. They think they're in the Jesus crowd. They think that they're the difference makers, and Jesus has to stop. And Jesus has to turn around and say, listen, what you're thinking about yourself and what you're thinking about your fellowship is wrong. Let me clarify it to you. Boy, that's a big part of our ministry. A big part of our ministry is clarifying to people what does it mean truly to be a follower of Jesus Christ? Because we have our own definition. And then, uh, Brother Dwight, we have, our, we have our American definition. But what does it really mean to be a follower of Jesus Christ? Watch the clarification. We talked about the crowd. Now, number two, let's talk about the clarification that Jesus offers right here in verse 26. Look at it. Where the Bible says, if any man come to me, So there is an individual decision. Discipleship, at the end of the day, is volitional. The facts can be presented. uh, The facts can be clarified. But at the end of the day, we have to make a decision to follow Jesus or not to follow Jesus. I can't make that decision for you. I can't make that decision for my children. I can do the best I can to provide an atmosphere. I can do the best I can to teach and encourage. I can do the best I can to pray and hope. But at the end of the day, people make choices. And Jesus didn't go running after people that that had the opportunity to make a choice and chose not to. 
He didn't run after the rich young ruler and say, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. I didn't mean all that you have. I mean, we can, make, we can strike a deal here. He didn't do that. He put the word out. He loved. He presented. And then he let people make choices. And so it's an individual choice. But not only is it an individual choice, following Jesus Christ, he clarifies, is a relational choice. At the end of the day, following Jesus Christ, being a disciple of Jesus Christ, is a relational choice. I think one of the dangers in modern day ministry is we've, we, we've, we've, we've drawn away from relation and we've made ministry a transaction. Okay, so attend at this time, go to this class, complete this curriculum, uh, be involved in this course. Everything's a transaction. Everything has a beginning point and an ending point. Everything is so neat and clean and fill in the blank. But that's not what Christ-like ministry is. I'm not saying that those aren't good tools in their place. They certainly are, and we use them. But what I'm saying is true discipleship is all about a relationship with Jesus Christ. Discipleship is not a what. Discipleship is a who. And the who is Jesus Christ. And watch what he says here in verse 26. If any man come to me and hate not, all of these are relationships. Father, mother, wife, children, brethren, sisters, yourself. They're all relationships. Why? Because every choice you make in your life is based upon a relationship. Every single choice you make. You say, oh, no, no. Uh, I don't care what anyone thinks, okay? Well, then you're making a choice based upon you. You're in love with yourself. But the point is that every choice you make is a competing choice between what Jesus wants and with what somebody else, including yourself, wants in your life. Only two choices on the shelf, right? Pleasing God or pleasing self. And so Jesus says, hey, it's a relational choice. And then he gives us some categories of relationships. Okay, so what are those categories? Look at it again in verse 26. So if any man come to me and hate not father and mother, father and mother. So a father and mother, that would be an authority relationship, wouldn't it? An authority relationship. And in this society, an authority relationship probably had a little bit more sway than authority relationships have today. You know, where honoring one's parents and honoring one's family name and honoring one's occupation. For instance, a son would follow the footsteps of a father in his occupation. Uh, remember what a big deal the neighbors of Zacharias made when he named his son John, not Zacharias. What? We don't have any family a member named John. I mean, that's unheard of. Why? There was, a, there was a, a predisposition on the part of people. Hey, you do it, mom and dad. You follow mom and dad, you honor mom and dad. It would be unthinkable to make a choice about following somebody without the authority of mom and dad approving. And yet what is Jesus teaching? Jesus is teaching there do come times in life and in discipleship when we have to make a choice to follow Jesus in spite of sometimes what our human authorities want us to do. Now, I'm not saying that we should teach a generation of young people to disobey mom and dad. But what I am saying is that our, our fidelity to Jesus Christ ought to be so strong that no other human authority can take the place of the authority that Jesus Christ is in, is in my life. It's a throne big enough for one person. And that one person ought to be Jesus Christ. When I went off to Bible college years ago, uh, the man in life whom I love more than anybody else my, my own dad, my ste- he was my stepdad at that point. He adopted me later on in life. He just wanted, you know, he, he wanted to make sure, you know. So anyway, uh, and I love him dearly. He's 85 years of, of age today. An educator, public school educator, award winner, state of Connecticut educator of the year. 
invited to the White House, presented a special award as the Educator of the Year in the state of Connecticut, on the steering committee for education in the 21st century, spoke at conferences all over, and now I come to him and telling him I'm going to Bible college, and by the way, it's unaccredited. That's like taking your fingernails and putting it on a chalkboard and going... That's like drinking Starbucks coffee. It's that annoying, okay? <laughs> I remember him looking at me and saying, Kurt, you're throwing your life away. You're throwing your life away. What do you see yourself doing with a Bible degree? And honestly, I didn't have an answer. Do you honestly see yourself getting up in front of people, speaking? You know what my answer was? Not really. But I knew what God had called me to do. There come times in our life when that decision has to trump even decisions here that we, authorities, we want to. It's a relational choice. Authorities, but not only authorities. Hey, I think it gets worse than that. Affections. That Jesus ought to be my greatest authority, but he ought to be my greatest affection. Because the Bible says a father and mother, and then watch this, and, and children. Man, I, I'd, I'd take a bullet from my kids. A children and brethren and sisters. Look at this. His wife. You have one ch- chance in life, typically, to choose a life's partner, somebody with whom you share the grace of life. I had one chance. My best friend, humanly speaking, in the world is my wife. And yet the Bible says that, that next to my fidelity to Jesus Christ, I ought to, be, I ought to disesteem her next to Jesus. Wow. Job's wife didn't learn that lesson. And honestly, probably the biggest battle he faced in all of his struggle was the battle he faced in his own home with his own wife saying, no, honey, just curse God and die. I hate to see you. She made it about him. It's him or me. I'm going to tell you something. We've got a lot of wives here in the room. Never put your husband in that position. Never put him in that position. Push him to love Jesus first. And by the way, husbands, do that for your wife. The best marriage is a marriage where you're number two. And he's number one. And Jesus was saying discipleship only works when Jesus is on the throne of your heart as the authority. And discipleship only works when he is your primary affection. Is that not what the Apostle Paul said? Did not the Apostle Paul said, and let me tell you the one thing that drives me to do everything I do. The one thing that drives me to do everything I do is the fact that Jesus Christ loves me. The love of Christ, it constrains me. Because we thus judge that if one died for all, then we're all dead. And that he died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. The Apostle Paul said, you know, I've got a lot of education. I sat at the feet of Gamaliel. I can go toe-to-toe with all the theologians. But let me tell you the most important truth I've learned and the most motivating truth I've ever learned. Jesus loves me. This I know. For the Bible tells me so. I do what I do because he loves me. That's discipleship. Discipleship says, he's my authority. Discipleship says, he's my affection. But watch this, number three. Because the Bible says father and mother and then wife and children and brethren and sisters. But, but th- this one really hits me right between the eyes. Because the Bible says, yay, yay, and his own life. Because sometimes the person we love the most is the person we look at in the mirror. We'd never say it. 
We'd never say, I love myself, but, but we do. And the Bible says, hey, no man yet hateth his own flesh. If we're not careful, boy, I'll tell you what, self can take the throne, can it? What's Jesus doing? He's clarifying. He's clarifying these relationships and saying, listen, you better put Jesus first. Are you willing to take your plans and your ambitions and all of, your, uh, all of what you thought ministry would be? You're Isaac. Who was Isaac? Isaac was the embodiment of all of Abraham's dreams. All the promises that God has ever given me are wrapped up in this body. All the future, all the seed without number and the stars of the heavens and the messianic, the Messiah that will come, uh, the, the, the fame of our family, all of my future is wrapped up in Isaac. And then God said, do you love me more than Isaac? Are you willing to take Isaac and bring Isaac here and give Isaac to me? And God says that to you today. You know, all the dreams we have in ministry and all of what we assume means ministry success. And all, are you willing to take all of that and say, Jesus, I give this to you? The wonderful thing is Jesus has a, a, a marvelous way of giving it back. But I wonder, is he first in my life? I'm talking to, I'm talking to fellow pastors. I'm talking to ministry leaders. I'm talking to those of you that have given your life to this thing. Is he first, my first authority? If he tells me, hey, I'm done with you here. I want to move you there. Am I? Yes, Lord. Yes, sir. I'm a soldier on deployment. I don't like Afghanistan, but if I have to go, I'm going to serve. Right? Where is that? He's my authority. He's my affection. He's Lord of my ambitions. That's the clarification. It's an individual choice. It's a relational choice. But watch the third clarification. Not only is it individual and then relational, but watch this, number three, it is a serious choice. So serious that the metaphor Jesus uses is almost absurd. It's almost absurd to a listening crowd. Look at verse 28, 27. And whosoever does not bear his cross. We say, well, what's so absurd about that? I mean, the cross, that's Christianity. The cross, that's Jesus. The cross, I mean, come on. That's axiomatic to a Christian audience, the cross. But understand, this audience had no idea that Jesus would die on the cross. The cross, in their conception, was the most heinous, brutal, obnoxious thing that only Romans did. We Jews, uh, uh, we would we, never crucify, I mean, ashamed, naked, tortured on a cross. That's uh, brutal. And yet it's the very illustration Jesus used about how serious, how serious discipleship is. Bearing the cross. Think about when a person would bear a cross, these things would be true. When a person bore a cross, what he was saying was, I'm submitting to a higher authority. It was the last act of submission Rome imposed upon a person. You'll carry your own cross. We're not going to have a soldier carry your cross. You carry your own. You're gonna, we're going to kill you, and you're going to help. It was submission to Rome. Rome loved to flex its muscles and show its power. Submission to a higher authority. A proclamation of my true identity. Well, when you bore a cross, they carried a placard in front of you. Thief, murderer, insurrectionist. This is who he really is. Oh, he got away with it for a while. He hid for a while. Uh, he th- thieved for a while, but this is who he is. So what was the cross? The cross was submission to a higher authority. The cross was a, the cross was a declaration of my true identity. Uh, the cross 
It was a resignation to a painful outcome. I know where I'm going. I know what's going to happen there. It's a resignation to that. It's a participation in the sufferings of Christ. Men, ladies, we're cross-bearers. We're submitted to a higher authority. Not my will, but thine be done. I, I don't like the cup I have to drink, but Lord, I'll do it. What are we? We're, we're declaring our, our identity. I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. The crowd can spit and jeer and people can misunderstand, but this is who I am. I'm resigned to a potential painful outcome. Lord, whatever comes, whatever happens, Lord, my life belongs to you. If people applaud, that's one thing. Or if I face an executioner's axe like John did or like Paul did or like Jesus did, I'm resigned to whatever you have for me. I surrender all. And I want to know you, Lord. And I love the times when I can know you in the power of your resurrection, but I want to know you. I want to know you in the fellowship of your sufferings. Discipleship. Boy, it's serious, isn't it? And so what is there? There's a a crowd interested enough to attend, committed enough to identify, but ignorant enough to need clarification. And Jesus said, let me clarify. It's your choice. And it's a relational choice. It's me versus, it's me versus, am I your authority? Am I your affection? Am I your chief ambition? Am I? Am I? This is serious. This is not playground. This is cross-bearing. And then lastly, this morning, just quickly, in the last several minutes, there's a call to action. Now, we won't take time to read the text for sake of time, but Here's what Jesus said. Jesus said, okay, I'm done with my message, but let me give you some clarification. It's kind of like, it's kind of like if somebody's going to build a tower. Want to build a tower, then you better get the blueprints out, and you better uh, look at the bank account and see the surplus account, and you better look at uh, the the labor that you need, and you better get the proper permitting, because you don't want to build a tower and get halfway done with a tower and then not be able to finish it. Everyone that comes by says, boy, uh, what, well, how, how shameful they only got it halfway done. People don't make fun of people that don't start. They make fun of people that start and go halfway. You know what Jesus is saying? Another illustration, it's like going to war. If you want to go to war, you can go to war, but you better figure out how many troops you have. You better figure out what your strategy is. You better figure out whether or not you can win, or you might want to sue for peace. You better think about it first. So what's, what's Jesus' call to action about discipleship? It's very different from our call to action when we preach big team meetings. Because at this point, the message is like, okay, come forward. If you love Jesus, I want you to hit this altar. If you don't love Jesus, I want you to hit this altar. If you don't understand the question, I want you to hit this altar. Because we've made the end-all, be-all hitting the altar. Jesus didn't give invitations that way. You know what Jesus said first? Think about it. He said, think about it. Let that sink in. Think about it. Because halfway is counterproductive. Better not to start and not finish. Better not to start than to start and not finish. Think about it. Call to action number two. Remember your purpose. Because Jesus said, okay, guys, salt is good. Now, they knew exactly what he was talking about because Jesus had already introduced this metaphor. 
He had already talked about it. They knew it. He used it as an extended metaphor for followers of his salt. They knew exactly what he was talking about. Hey, salt's good. But, but, but if the salt no longer can do what salt is supposed to do, which is to savor things. If the salt has lost the savor, then it's good for what? It's good for what? Nothing. But the parallel passage says it's good for nothing but, oh, wait a minute. So it is good for something. It's good for nothing but, but to be cast under the feet of men. I'm told that salt, when it had lost its savor, because it hardens, it congeals, it was used to be cast under the feet of men, to fill potholes. It was like good makeshift asphalt. So that people that are following you won't trip where you tripped. In other words, when we have lost our effectiveness as true disciples of Jesus Christ, Jesus says, so there is a purpose for your life now, and that purpose is you can be a pothole filler. People can look at your soiled testimony and say, I don't want to trip there. I don't don't want to be a pothole filler. I don't want to live my whole life and serve God, have everyone think one thing, and then die and have my name all over the news. I thought we, he was a great apologist, but I guess he was. Take heed. Right? Remember your purpose. Your purpose is to be a saver of Christ in a world that desperately needs him. And so what do I see? I say, hey, think about it. Call to action. What do I say? Number two, re- remember your purpose. That's, that's more think about it, isn't it? But then lastly, look at chapter 15 of verse 1. I think sometimes we do ourselves a disservice when we uh, stop at the end of a chapter. Look, look at chapter 14 of verse 35. It's neither, the, the salt, it's neither fit for the land nor yet for the dunghill, but men cast it out. He that hath ears to hear, let him hear. Are you listening, Jesus says. Then, see that? That's a word of transition. Look at chapter 15 and verse 1. Look at it. Then, then, then drew near unto him... Who's going to respond to that message? Who has given this message thought and consideration and is now coming to Jesus? Because Jesus began the whole message by saying, if you want to come to me. So who's coming to him? Look at it, verse 1. Then drew near unto him all the publicans and sinners. You know who ended up being these disciples after this message or a disciple candidate? Watch this. People that had nothing to lose. They didn't have a reputation to try to uphold. They weren't worried about saying, I'm a mess. I've got secret sin in my life. I need help. Now, the reason why we struggle with discipleship in our Christian school movement is because we've created cloaks and disguises and elaborate stages where people know the right words and know the right clothes and know all of it and nobody comes forward because they have too much to lose. I wonder, where are the disciples? I'm going to tell you where they are. They're in your crowd, but they're not your crowd. 
You've been listening to a message from the Pensacola Christian College Enrichment Retreat. You're welcome to pass this message along to others, but we ask that you do not charge for it without written permission from Pensacola Christian College. If you're a pastor or ministry leader, join us for the next Enrichment Retreat and experience a time of physical rest and spiritual refreshment. To learn more, visit enrichmentretreat.com.